Hi, it's Susan, and I'm an expert in helping musicians to have better relationships with themselves and with the world. This is a really tough episode to listen to with Sarah Denham. Much beyond her career journey, we get really deep into the fight we often have with ourselves, the stress, physical breakdown and burnout that causes, and we hear about her fight to be seen and her journey of self-recovery. So give yourself some time to process this deep discussion with Sarah. Welcome to today's episode of the Change Your Tune podcast. I'm your host, Susan Eldridge, and today our guest is coach, trainer in public speaking, presenting and influencing, Sarah Denham. Sarah, good morning. Good morning, Susan. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Um, Sarah, what does being a coach and a trainer in these kind of uh, public speaking, presenting and influencing skills look like? What does it look like? It looks like working with people individually on, they might be mid-career, they might be nervous about their speaking. I get a lot of people who lack confidence and that that's my, definitely my background. I lacked a lot of confidence around that. So I get a lot of those people. I get um, people in tech and healthcare and engineering and sometimes they just are not, they're very into their topic, but they're not very good at presenting it. They don't know how to be engaging. They don't know how to influence in the right ways. Um, and I also run groups for that as well, so training as well. So I run public courses, I go in-house and I, I train. Usually online I coach as well now. Yeah, all of it online right now. Uh, it's, it's fascinating because <laughs> I think that's a real, it, it, it's, across in, it's across sectors where we have people who are expert, uh, expert in topic knowledge mm. um, but unable to articulate that to... Uh, either to other professionals within their area of reference or to a broader sector, uh, to, to the public audience. And, and I often think about that from an academic and research point of view is, well, what is the point if those ideas can't be articulated in a way that presents not only the research but why it matters? Exactly. Oh, that's so true. And that's obviously one of the first things that I will look at is to go to this concept of why it matters. Um, and that happens a lot in healthcare, particularly, uh, because yes, they're so in, involved in their research and, and it's what they live and breathe. But if you, as you say, if you can't get that point across, are you going to get funding for a start? I mean, a lot of it is around funding now, isn't it? And, and, and pitching yourself, and I work with entrepreneurs and it's like, if you can't pitch it, you no one knows about you. You're, you're a secret and then it's all lost, isn't it, really? Yeah, exactly. And also the ability to have a range of pitches. So, okay, you've got five words to tell me or you've got two and a half minutes or you've got 45 yes. minutes. So the ability to craft for the audience uh, mm. the, most, the, the, the most succinct and relevant depending on whatever the parameters are that you've been given for that moment. I want to, Sarah, I'm sure it's going to come out, but I really want to dig as we go through this conversation, you said that um, you work with people who lack confidence and you once were someone who lacked confidence. Um, I'm really, seeing as how that was the first thing that it was one of the first things that came out, I'm really, really curious to hear more about that. But this work that you do now is not what you've always done. Um, can you give us the, the backstory of Sarah? Sure, yes. I used to be... Uh classical pianist and I went to music college. I went to the Royal Northern College in Manchester. I grew up in the UK. And 
um, I, I found that very challenging. It was in the 1980s. The teaching was fantastic. It was vibrant. There was so much going on and so many opportunities. But I always worried about my technique. My technique was adequate, but certainly not foolproof. And so I think I was always worried that I was going to let myself down. If I was working with um, another artist, you know, I was often an associate artist and I was worried about that, that I would let them down. And it really became a strong burden for me that I always felt, I suppose, they, you know, you probably now you call it a bit of imposter syndrome, but even as a student, you were expected to be able to step up. And I always struggled with that. And even now you can hear me gulping because um, I found that so stressful. That's still in my cells. That's still in my body. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of what it's like, which I think is one reason why I can work with people who uh, lack confidence because I still remember vividly what that feels like. Um, then I hit a point as a student where the stress was too much for me and I was in a difficult relationship, so that wasn't working all that well. And I developed eczema, which was my family genetic trigger uh, for stress. And I developed eczema all over. I was hospitalized a couple of times and, and they didn't really know what to do with me. So they just pumped me full of steroids and shot me back out there again. But at one point, you know, my skin was so bad. And I think it was a traumatic experience too when I went to see a dermatologist once at the Salford Skin Hospital. Um, and that was a building that had been there since like the 1850s or something. It was not, not good. And I walked in and I thought I was having a one-on-one -on -one consult and it was a whole room full of students, derm dermatology students. And I just remember breaking down. And, and I think a lot of my history around not wanting to be stared at, apart from the fact that I'm a natural introvert and I don't particularly like being looked at, I've really had to learn how to overcome that and help people to do that. Um, so yeah, I went through a lot of trauma around that and I didn't leave the house at one point for three months. And when I went back out on stage, I really struggled to be watched. Um, and that's when I decided I, I then ended up in Australia and I was still having trouble. And I thought, okay, I'm going to learn how to speak in public because I couldn't do that either. And that was kind of my way back to feeling confident on stage. And the funny thing too, Susan, I, I'm, I'm talking a lot, but is that people often said, look, you look so calm, nobody would know. But internally, I was just paddling for dear life. I mean, I would wake up that morning and it would be like, I, you know, say I had a master's recital that I was playing for. I would have rather got on a plane and left the country. I would have done almost anything not to have that thing in the evening, that blob of blackness in the diary that was coming up and I couldn't get out of it because you can't get out of it. You've committed to it, you've got to do it. And yeah, that was huge as well. Sorry, there was a lot in that. <laughs> no, it's, it's, thank you for sharing, Sarah, because this is exactly why this podcast exists, so we can talk with such honesty about the experiences that we've had. And um, this issue of the embodiment of the emotion that we don't talk about when we train musicians, but we know feelings live in the body. Yeah. And that's exactly what you talked about, that your 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 body broke down because mm -hmm. your brain, you, you, we don't help musicians to understand the experience that they're having and all the feelings. We 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 help them be able to maybe express the feeling on a stage but we don't talk to them about the feelings actually live in your body and you have to do something with those things because if you're fighting biology biology is going to win and that's what's happened to you is your brain you were trying to do the right thing 
and your brain was telling you, you said about that, I found that so stressful. Mm. Um, so your brain was telling you, alert, 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 and you're ignoring the brain and your body said, okay, I am throwing the brakes on here. That's right. You, That's you right. Are not, you, you're not listening. You're, you're not listening to yourself. So I am going to pull the life support systems out of you and your body physically broke down as a result of the not having the knowledge and the tools to deal with the feelings that were living in your body at the moment. That's right. And it's the rawness too. And of course, when you have eczema, your, your whole body is raw. It's like your barrier has broken down. It's it's also like what I find interesting about that is you can't hide that either. No. And that was one of the things about the trauma of being, because I was out on stage. I remember going to Shropshire and doing a recital um, with a viola player when I was just on the cusp of being hospitalized and, and going on stage and not being able to straighten my arms without them bleeding. And, and no, I couldn't turn my neck. I was, I was at that level. It was, it was dreadful. I mean, if you would have looked at me with pity or horror or any of those things, and I knew that, and that's one reason why I just went, right, I'm done. So I ended up in hospital, just lying on a flat bed, <laughs> sleeping, going, this is, this has just all been too much. Yeah. I am. Um... This is something I haven't shared with anyone before, and it's not it's not a particularly deeply personal thing, but it's just something I've never spoken about. Is I had a similar experience, not with eczema, but with dermatitis on my hands oh. as a student, and I remember weeks and weeks on end of wearing white cotton gloves oh, with yeah. the steroid cream underneath them in class all day, and I would have to um, then have to manage how to because I play the French horn, there's a lot of contact of the hands on the instrument, Um, would then have to strip, you know, be really careful about how to manage not getting that steroid cream on the instrument if you're playing for four or five hours a day. Um, So I had a very similar thing and I now see that it was my my body pulling the life support plugs out because I was not uh, paying attention to what was really going on. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, it it was actually my gut that was the problem. It was my gut not my skin it came out in my skin it manifested but it took me years to learn that it was actually a gut issue so my gut was just saying your gut you're not happy <laughs> and that's um there's a, a wonderful book i'm going to link link in the show notes that i talk about a lot called burnout um and it was actually written by their their they both have um phds they're identical twin sisters One has a PhD in psychology and the other has a PhD in choral conducting. So they get us and what they talk about in that is um, all these problems that we have that are actually uh, related to our inability to to get to to acknowledge and get through our emotions. Mm -hmm. And they talk about all this um, and and anything that has to do with trauma uh, Bessel van der Kolk's work um, talks about the, the trauma lives in the body and all these things like gastro, gastrointestinal problems, mm. skin, in, any inflammatory issues, um, it's all related to processing, the processing of emotions. Yeah, wow. Like this, this I just, I know I'm on a bit of a rant about this, anyone who's listening, but like this is, this should be 101 for musicians is your, the, 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 our, our world is about feelings and you, we need to help you to understand how to have them safely. Because mm. mm. it's all this other stuff that happens when we don't do that. Um, but I think when you're a student and you're young, I mean, I look back now and I go, wow, that was actually really great learning for me because it's enabled me to have 
really deep, I, I believe, empathy for people and understanding and compassion for people who are struggling and suffering. And, and, and even just in, you know, I, I work with very competent business people, but if they have a confidence issue, there's, you know, there are things that we can do and absolutely things we can work on, but I understand it. I get it, you know. And, and also, Sarah, what you are able to say to them is I understand that you are able to um, present a public stance of confidence mm. that from the outside it looks very put together, but I understand that the inside of that may not be the same. Mm. And for you to say, not only do I understand, I have experience because I've been on stage in concert performances where, you know, the, the eggshell was very perfect and polished on the outside and the inside was just chaos. Yes. And yes. I think being able to say that to people and not only do I understand, but I have experience, I know what that feels like yep. is so powerful. Um, so, Sarah, you were saying that when you moved to Australia that you you said, oh, I'm going to learn how to speak in public. So for someone who had struggled with that, how how did you do that? Oh, I, I, I decided that this was going to be the thing. And I, I also, I loved words. I loved um, communicating ideas. So I thought, yes, I'm going to go and do this. So I actually went and I, I went to a class. I went to Rostrum, um, which was a small, it was a safe environment to start speaking. And by the end of the first year, I'd actually won a you know an award for for them regionally. Now that's no big deal, but the point was that I worked towards something, and I realised that yes, this is something I really enjoy and that I can do. Um, and then I sort of built myself up that way, and people started asking me what I'd done to improve how I felt about my confidence levels, and that's how I ended up morphing slowly into what I do now, which is now full-time, obviously, and has been. I mean, I started this business in 2009, so I've been around a long time in the, in the training coaching world as well. So how did... I'm interested in the, in the experience, though, of... Um when you went to Rostrum and it was a safe space, which is a really big part of any kind of change process internal. But all when we start, when we want to try and address something that's habited so strongly in our bodies, um, there's a lot of resistance and there's a lot of wanting to return to the habits that feel safe. Absolutely. Um, so had, I'm interested in what happened in your head and in your body in this change in this as you were going through this experience. Yeah, yeah. I think initially it was just about, you know what, I'm just going to show up. Um, and even if I show up and I don't speak, at least I've shown up and I can. And it was basically saying, look, you you can be you can be proud of yourself if you just do this one step. I had to work out what the steps were. And that sounds a bit clinical. It didn't feel like it at the time, but it was like just it was a Monday night, I remember. And it was like, OK, I'm just going to show up. And then I drove home and I went, yeah, well done. OK, you, you did that. Now you're going to go back next week. And it was a really gradual process of, of self, I mean, self-talk is such, a, you, I'm sure you'd agree with me, Susan, that self-talk is such a big part of it. I mean, it's basically everything because our beliefs and what we tell ourselves mean that we're either going to move forwards or we're going to retreat. And I was almost determined to move forwards. It was, it was like I was so... I needed safety so much. I clung to what I perceived as safety. Part of that was through not feeling incredibly safe as a child. I mean, nothing traumatic, but I, I was there was a lot of edge going on in my childhood. Parents weren't happy, etc. And so I was always looking for safety and security, and that was that were, that was a values thing for me. And I it was I think I flipped my values, and I just went, I'm going to change the hierarchy of this because 
growth was also in my mind a value and it was like well I'm not growing here I, I, I would rather sit at home and watch TV and drink cups of tea and I feel safe but do I really want to get to the end of my life and that was what I did and I went no you know what I'm going to flip this so I did but I had to remind myself of that constantly <laughs> Yeah, go. it's growth, and if you're scared, it means you're growing. This is a good thing. So yeah. if you're scared, this is not a trigger to retreat. It's a trigger to say, right, this means you're actually doing it right. Yeah, this is this is the change Yes. right now. this It's the same thing about like uh, when you're at the gym and it's really hurting and you want to stop, <laughs> but you're trying to do two more repetitions. Like this is the moment That's right. that I sit at um, no, change or no change right now. And, yeah. and I, that, that point you made about um, changing the hierarchy of the value or, or moving, the, moving the values in their hierarchy to put growth back at the top mm. allows you to have that. That's the compass that you keep coming back to when it's really uncomfortable yeah. in that moment of actually mm. growth is more important. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm willing to tolerate the discomfort. Yes. I can, tol- I can sit in the discomfort. I can sit in these feelings. Yes. I know they're temporary and it's I think it's also about understanding that those that discomfort it, it's having experience it, it's mm-hmm. it's trying it once and knowing the discomfort didn't kill me exactly and, and I, the, tell my, I tell my yeah. clients that too yeah. and the, like, fear, the fear the fear of the yeah, yeah yeah so and once you've done it once then you know it, it's true you know it to be true you've embodied it yourself and you can say all right I've done this and I know I can sit Yes. I know I can sit in it. It's okay. It will come to an end. And it's it's and I think a lot of it's about that fear of oh, I'm really uncomfortable and I don't will this ever end? And a lot of it I, I think is the fear of being stuck in that discomfort. Oh, absolutely. And it's fear of being afraid. And and again, that's so familiar to me, but also familiar with many of my clients that they don't want to feel the fear. Um, and I talk to people now, oh, there's so many ways I could go with this, but I talk to people now about the fact that, look, when I'm doing something that, that's meaningful in a, in a big way for me, that's not used to, it's outside my comfort zone, my heart still pounds. Like, you know, I still play uh, music and I'll still sometimes go and perform and my heart's pounding like I'm on the treadmill. You know, you talk about the gym and people look at me and they go, oh, I thought that would have ended. And I go, no, unfortunately, I just go, you know what? And this is something that's worth thinking about. I tell them it's just part of the deal because this happens over and over. Anytime you're doing something that matters to you or something that's important professionally or something where you're afraid of stuffing up. And as adults, unless we're you know unaware, of course we want to make a good impression. And, and so public speaking is one of those awful vulnerable activities where we know we're alone up there being watched, being judged. It's no good saying, well, it's okay. You're not being judged because you are being judged because we judge other people when we see them up there too, don't we? I mean, we can't help it. We're wired for that comparison. Um, But I think too, Susan, and this is something I never realized that one of the things I learned through music, I learned so many things, but it's, it's about, you feel terrible at times beforehand, but you step out on that stage because you don't have a choice. You're letting everybody down. If you're an associate artist, you can't do that to them for a start. You're letting down the audience. You're letting down the organizers. You don't have a choice. So you just learn to deal with it. And you learn to be with that discomfort and still make it work and still function. And one of the ways I learned to do that is just you focus. You staple yourself to the page. As I talk about, you just every bar, 
if you make a mistake, you learn how to just move on with not a flinch. Nobody would ever know on your face you've made a mistake. You just move on. And I think that's been incredibly powerful my, for my current career because speaking is easier. Speaking is much easier than getting the right notes in the right order with a piece that everybody knows that they've heard recordings of with a critical audience, say. Yeah, speaking is, you can do it. I, I, I think, Sarah, I, I love that you were saying about the, uh, it's the responsibility that we bring with us, this ability to perform mm. on cue, um, regardless of what's happening inside us, or in, in spite of, or with, it, with um, the, 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 the house lights go down at 7.32 p.m. <laughs> doesn't matter how you're feeling. The audience, the audience aren't there for that. They're, they're there to be transformed and that's our responsibility. That, that, that is the true responsibility. I think the other thing that I heard you say, sorry, the other thing I heard you say that I think comes from your music is you were talking about um, when you were working with Rostrum and taking these steps to um, have a better relationship with your voice in public is you codified and operationalized that process much in the way like if I gave you a complicated score of music you'd know how to start from okay I have never heard this I've never seen it it's very complicated I have to perform this in 12 weeks yes you have a process to be able to break that down and chunk it chunk it back together again um to work you said it had to work out what the steps are so I think the you just applied that process of learning a score for performance overlaid to this um public speaking that's so true you're analyzing it aren't you as you as you go and you know also that you can't get away with not practicing um I don't know about you but but still one of my nightmares I rarely have them but one of my nightmares is turning up and now I'm turning up um and I haven't prepared my talk but in the old days, I was turning up in my dreams and I hadn't, I didn't know the score. I'd bought the wrong music. I hadn't practiced. Uh, you know, it's that turning up naked thing. It's just, you can't get away with it. Um, you, disciplined. Sarah, I'm killing myself laughing because uh, you know my, or you've met my wife, Ingrid Martin. And yes. uh, Ingrid's a conductor, but um, before she was a full-time conductor, she, she trained and worked as a doctor um you know as you do and one of the things it it doesn't happen frequently but she still occasionally has dreams where she's in the Dandenong emergency department and it's a Sunday and someone needs some emergency care but she's not registered anymore and she's and then so she deals with the patient but then she's got to figure out how to escape from the hospital without getting caught by the medical registration people so it's exactly it's the naked dream but for her it's still happening occasionally as she's still in the emergency department and it's been 10 years since she's been a doctor so it's funny funny how the echoes keep coming back right yep they sure do they sure do um so sarah i really want to hear about the work that you are now doing coaching and teaching and what you bring from your artist your musical artistry and your musical training into the into that kind of teaching work where it's not it's 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 not about music at all it's about it's actually about the person Mm. uh so yeah what where are the connections for you and what do you see that you're bringing through to that work Mm, mm. um i well there are so many different angles that i come at the you know the, the the challenges whatever it is that people are trying to achieve uh there are different ways that i would look at that um breaking breaking it down i think one of the things that clients have said to me is 
that they saw, let's say they're afraid of speaking, that, that it was just this big wodge of unmanageable uncertainty. And they'll say, well, what you've managed to do for me is actually just break it, break it all down into the different components so that it then becomes certain, which is what our brain is looking for. It doesn't like that uncertainty. Um, but it also just becomes a series of processes. And that sounds very cold and quite analytical, but it sort of isn't as it's happening. But it's that sense of, oh, these are the skills. And I'm different. I have a, a suite of skills, but I also do work intuitively. So I never just template and this is what you're doing because everybody is different. And I always work with that. But it's like, yeah, these are the things we can work with. You might try priming yourself before you step out on stage, you know, so that's self-talk and it's visualization and it's anchoring back to um, a time where you did feel confident. Or I might talk about a, a prior competence map, as I call it, with people where they're thinking about the different things in their life, where they, they're multifaceted. And this works particularly well for women if you think about um, who you are in your life. These are all skills that I've brought I guess from I, from music about breaking things down about how to practice about how to focus because I never realized that was a skill I had but of course it's enormous skill and also the ability to sit with the discomfort and that that's okay and you do let it wash through you and if you stand there and your hands are shaking if you allow them to shake and you tell them it's okay they'll probably stop shaking um, just all kinds of things like that. It's, it's so that the, I don't know if that's a helpful response. There's... Yeah, it, it is really helpful. And I think also what you said at the beginning about not only not only from a, a tactical point of view of breaking it down into incremental, breaking it down into a series of processes, but doing that way um, allows people to have incremental success. Yes. Which is what we know is is crucial to people making a better habit formation is instead of saying, oh, I'm going to stop drinking alcohol altogether, is to say, well, you know, make a set of incremental goals that are achievable and step towards the bigger goal rather than, um, oh, I'm never going to eat chocolate again in my life, which is a pretty <laughs> unreasonable thing to expect of yourself. <laughs> That's exactly right. It is. It's about breaking it down and it's small wins. And we know now from psychology that this idea of the small nudges is the way to build something new because because our system is always trying to go back to homeostasis to status quo and, and as you talk about with habits so that's one reason why i run my public courses in melbourne they go for five weeks i'm not doing a half day or a full day because i know that this going away reflecting practicing having homework coming back it builds and those and it layers and it layers and that's that's really what it's about i mean and often we just don't hear something the first time as well. Sometimes mm. we hear something and it's a revelation and we go, oh, my God, I never thought of that. And we change in an instant. But for most people and for most clients and certainly for myself, you know, we often need to hear things repeated a lot in slightly different ways, perhaps, so that they then start to layer. And finally, we go, you know what, that I've got that now and I've embedded it because embedding is is rarely instant unless it's a trauma, of course, and then it's then it's instant. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for for big change, uh, particularly if you're trying to help your clients get away from, say, a habit of reading a script in front of people, mm. to be able to speak with fluency 
and personality is um, that, the, the, as you said, it needs to be the embedding. It, it must be, it, it, needs to, it needs to be fluent in their body. Yes. And that's not a one and done process. No. Um, that's right. And also setting up, I think, one of the things that I try and I, I do a very similar thing to what you're doing with my students at the, that I work with at the conservatory because I say to them, if you can't share your ideas um, with clarity, they're useless. Having the idea is useless if it can't be communicated. Um, so giving them lots of um, micro exposure yes. and then talking to them so much about how they're feeling and getting really getting them more than anything to be able to, at the end of the semester to be able to say, oh, I, I feel I feel so different because it's it's not a it's, it's not outcome driven for them. It's about getting them to have a better relationship with speaking with confidence yes. rather than about I have now I have now more influence over my audience or I've I've got yeah. the big grant. It's about I feel better about myself. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then those other things are far more likely to come to you because you're not fighting yourself. And it's like performing when we're performing split, you know, we're self-monitoring. Oh, I didn't do that. And of course, as a musician, going back to the old days, the fact that we have the two parts of the brain so that, I, you know, we can be playing the piano or French horn and, and talking, criticizing ourselves as we're going, <laughs> whereas at least when you're speaking, th that comes in. But when you're actually in the moment of speaking, that's not happening. But yes, that's huge. And, and it's integration. And yeah it's it's that sense of wholeness without going overboard with that concept but it's it's integrating and embedding in a way that people do feel that they've they've also got clear boundaries between themselves and the audience and it's like they can flip between the two because when we're speaking in public um a lot of it is that, is that feeling of competence that yes i can think coherently and i can also respond to what's happening in the moment and that needs this constant you know flip between the the two the two energies and and then it becomes a shared energy and that's what we're after so instead of being separate first of all it's me and it's you out there then it becomes we and then it then it's shared and and that's when it's i was going to say that's when the magic happens and that's not my sort of thing normally so i don't know where that came from but but that is when audiences that were in attunement then we're in, the, we're in that resonance zone where it's just working and it doesn't matter what you're talking about. And I have really competent clients who have dry topics and they worry about the fact that the topics are dry. Well, there are always ways to make them more engaging, you know, case studies, examples, little things you can drop in. But when they feel they've got that, they know they've got the engagement, suddenly there's that attunement coming in and they may never have felt that before because they always felt like, and I have... You know, I had one client recently who said, I said, well, how do you open your presentation? And she said, oh, she said, I always say to them, my opening words are, I'm sorry, you've got me. And I just went, wow, that is, that's really sad. Um, but by the end of our work together, I'm happy to announce that she did not say that anymore. But that was, that's, that's the level. That what I hear in those words is, is, what she thinks of herself yes which is right. heartbreaking that's to right. think that and and how do you as you said exactly how do how how on earth can you be having a we experience when you are so being so i call it kicking the baby when you're kicking the baby like um I, this colleague of mine jeff nelson he talks about when babies are learning to 
walk and you know they hold on to their little chubby fingers their hands are holding on to your fingers as they're stepping on and on learning to take their first steps and they stumble and fall you don't kick the baby and say stupid baby you should have known better but that's what we do to ourselves in these in these moments of learning and trying new things is particularly where we, we where as your clients are ex clearly experts subject matter experts highly regarded and to think of themselves as beginners and learners is quite challenging to their very framework of who they think they are and this is also an issue with professional classical musicians ironically is that they many of them don't think of themselves as learners and so if they want to and and that's so this then so then because of that thinking about what about learning and changing growth um taking a beginner's mindset to something is an anathema to their self-identity as an expert Absolutely. and they get locked in that's how they get locked in life and then they're unable to think again about what might be possible for themselves because but I'm an expert that's right and that means I can't be a beginner yes because it fractures the mask the persona that we have of who we are as an adult in the world functioning and these people function incredibly well and I'm not saying that there's there's they've got issues behind the scenes but when it comes to speaking some of them now some of them don't I work with plenty of people who are very confident um, but the super confident ones don't tend to be attracted to me <laughs> because I'm not attracted to them. I'm not, I don't, I don't find overconfidence, even though it's often masking insecurity, obviously, but uh, those people don't tend to come to me. But I certainly work with very, very competent people. And sometimes all they need is a tweak and they're, they're you know, they're good to go. And Sarah, do you think that that's because the clients that are attracted to you are attracted to you because they are you and you are them. I think there's certainly an element of that too. And I, and I think it's how you come across. I mean, people say, oh, you, you seem gentle. Um, mm. I, I can still be very forthright and I can challenge them. But I think that my, probably my persona is, is quite gentle and kind. And they think, oh, okay, I, therefore they move towards that sense of safety. I was just going to say that because you said that at the beginning about that what you were seeking was safety. Yes. And so that's you've come full circle of the thing that you sought, mm. which was safety and to be able to um, speak and feel safe yes. uh, from 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 feeling very unsafe and un and out of control um, is exactly the environment that you you couldn't find it you had to create that for yourself which you did through the journey through rostrum and beyond and now that's what you have created is the thing that you were seeking yes yes you're imagine right. if you've been able to meet yourself oh yes i know i know i often think that and look here i am and it's 30 years later from being a student um and i think god it took a long time but obviously i was i was evolving but certainly now in my 50s i get it more than i have ever got it before it's like yeah I, I really yeah I feel like I truly can sit and help in in ways that are beneficial and I think also one of the things that will have come from particularly your experience as an associate artist to now the work that you do with clients is to listen that's exactly right you have to listen to them and you really got to listen to um and it, it's often, I don't know if this is the case, but it's like when you go to, Ingrid talks about this from the diagnostic skills that she has um, from being trained in medicine is the, the patient appears and they say, oh, I've got a problem with my hip. 
and you deal with the problem with the hip and then and then you know seven or nine minutes into the consult and you've wrapped all that up and you say okay is there anything else and then comes out that oh I've actually been feeling really sad or I'm over it and I'm, I'm wondering if it's that ability to sit in the discomfort with them to, to let that initial conversation about why they're saying they're there to come to its conclusion to let the why they why they've really come to you come through I, I don't know if that's oh, something yes. that happens for you yes yes certainly with some clients it does without without doubt because it, it's like I was actually talking to someone a doctor the other day about this who one of my clients and and it's I said look we're not going to put a band-aid over this and I know it's such a cliche but it's true it's like we're not there's no point in just putting a band-aid over this because it's actually not going to heal underneath so let's just let's just work this out from the bottom let's almost you know um let's make this happen and definitely that's true and I think one of the ways I learned to listen initially too was my master's tutor at the RNCM was blind and he'd been blind since birth and he was just the most amazing man he was a singer professional singer and then he was a tutor Um, and he really taught me even as a student how to listen really how to listen um, in ways that I'd never done before because he had that that extra sense himself um, and I've always drawn on that yeah and lack of judgment as and well. I, I think also um, yeah lack of lack of judgment and the understanding that your role that and it's it's that that associate artist is an interesting role because sometimes you sometimes you are the star because you have you know great content but sometimes you're the supporting role um, and it's this beautiful interweaving of I, I must be being aware of what your responsibility to the music and the colleagues are mm. um, and and doing that in the coaching work that you do if sometimes I'm here to listen sometimes I'm here to take charge and um, that I've got I've got to have fluency in my skill of understanding my responsibility and how I can best get a better outcome how I get the best outcome for the client and help the client understand what outcome they're trying to achieve out of it so it's like this part it's partnership it is absolutely right yes 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 that's right and certainly um being an associate artist it yes it teaches you a lot <laughs> how to lead how to follow when to lead uh yes it's it's fascinating isn't it and absolutely but but the thing is when i moved into what i do now it's only recently that i've even really thought about the skills that music gave me i just went oh yeah i can do this most people can do this I'll just get on with it and and now I'm realizing actually no that because music does set you up in a pretty unique way uh, and I'm sure you've heard this from all your other uh, people that you're interviewing for the podcast too as well as the people that you work with it's it's yes it's fascinating isn't it how we music is very specific Sarah you mentioned earlier that you are still playing uh, you said so what is your relationship with because you spoke about your time uh, at the end of your studies as being very traumatic and that your body broke down and you you're you're very unwell mm. um how is it now what is what is it what is it what kind of what kind of music are you making what is the experience like for you now mm. um I play very rarely because I just don't have time to practice and I get frustrated at not being able to play at the level that I used to. Uh, and again, I'm sure you hear that a lot too. So I do very little. I occasionally get asked to uh, play 
for a recital for someone. Um, and I'm, I will consider and I'll do that and I'll always look at the repertoire and think about that. I sometimes play chamber music with friends, or used to, not you know, pre-COVID. And um, I'll, I'll go and play the piano myself. And there's just a few things that I'm working on that I'll, I'm, I've got Bach is one of my great loves and I'll just go and sit gently and work through a few bars and it's just very, just takes me back because I miss it. I have to say I still miss, I miss what I used to do but I don't regret a moment of it because I'm really happy. What I'm doing now is what I'm meant to be doing but I still miss music uh, and I miss aspects of it and I miss the collegiality of it and the, and the bonds and, and those things because yeah, yeah, it's just, it's part of me. That, that phrase that you just said about I miss what I used to do but I don't regret a moment of it I just hope that that anyone that's listening that might be considering making change he really hears that because that holding that tension of both yes I do miss it I'm not going to not going to lie or, or I'll hide that but I but equally what I do now is very fulfilling mm. in ways that I couldn't have known mm. before I embarked on this and I think that I think there's a lot of um, people fearful around career change of will I will I find joy and meaning yes. and purpose because the thing I do I feel so strongly you know you don't you're not a professional musician because for any other reason than than you have to do it and you just yeah. love it love it yeah, more than anything right. and I think there's a lot of fear around could I find that oh absolutely in another in, in doing other work that's you know more stable or not not as challenging in all the ways that it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think too, it's just about, you know, take take small steps and just dip your toe in and do something part-time, go and volunteer, if that's the way to do it. I made one giant leap where I, I left something to do coaching um, and didn't work. I was too early, I went too soon, I wasn't mentally prepared, so I went, right, that didn't work. Went back again um, to a different institution and then I incrementally worked my way up until I was ready to leave. And that, for me, that was the best way. Some people are better to leap. I was not a leaper. Leaping did not work. Yeah. That's, so what, was, what didn't work for you, Sarah? I wasn't mentally prepared to run my own business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I basically just went, oh, okay, suddenly I'm not being told what to do on a Monday. I mean, I was only ever contract because I, I, I always refused. I was offered salaries and I always refused because freedom was always really important. And I was like, I don't want to go on school camps and I don't want to do this and that when I, you know, just... Well, that wasn't me and I didn't want to be told what to do um, but at the same time I loved the framework and I hadn't created a framework for myself so that literally there I was sitting going okay now what do I do and I didn't have a framework and I and instead of moving forwards and taking action around that in that moment I became paralyzed to the point where I just went oh okay and I retreated again and um, didn't work and I went, okay, that didn't work. It was too soon. And it was too soon. I wasn't emotionally mature enough to make that work. So I went again. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like one of the um, like one of the gifts that's come out of all of this for you is that insight that that you have of yourself to be able to um, examine like to be with this kind of metacognition thinking about your own thinking and also being aware of the choices that you're making that are putting you in this place right now of rather than rather than being stuck and being unaware that you were stuck um you were able to be aware that you were stuck mm -hmm. and then 
take some choices. And I think that that's that's an incredible gift that comes through a lot of internal work about yes. being to, being able to uh, think about yourself. <laughs> yes, I have to, I have done internal work. <laughs> Sometimes you just go. I, I had someone say the other day, "Oh, will this ever end?" And I thought, "Yeah, I know that feeling." <laughs> it's, it's all good. It is well, well worth it. What can I say? It's well, well that, that will it ever end? I mean, the only response to that is, "I don't know," but I'm here with you <laughs> while we find out. <laughs> like COVID who knows maybe one day um Sarah it's been such a delight hearing your story Shane thank you for the trust that you've placed in us for sharing some very challenging times in your life and and the gifts that they've led to and I just I love this notion that you you are now the thing that you needed Mm. uh back then of of a trusting set of hands and an open heart to help people feel confident to speak about their ideas. And it's a beautiful gift that you give to people. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that, Susan. Um, I'll put all the links to all the stuff we talked about in the show notes. But uh, and, and, until then, thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. And um, go go play some bark today. Oh, sounds good. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please help me share these stories by sharing this with others. You can post about it on your socials, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or you can leave me a rating and a review about this podcast. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Notable Values. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.